Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 124, air date May 31st, 2017. Hey guys, I'm here today with scientist and entrepreneur Dr. Shiva Ayadore, who is slated to run against Elizabeth Warren in the 2018 United States Senate election in Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining me, Shiva. Great to be here, Brittany. How are you? I'm well, and it's a pleasure to have you. So um, to start, do you mind introducing yourself and, letting, and telling us a bit about your background, particularly your journey to America and the legal immigration process? Sure, Brittany. You know, my journey to America really went through probably a very similar journey, either directly directly or indirectly, that all of us have gone through America, which is a process of what I call immigration, you know, us coming e- either here by ourselves or our grandparents came here, and then the process of what I call going through the system of education in America. Mm-hmm. And the latter part is what I call innovation, really contributing to this country in one way or the other. So for me, on the immigration side, to start with, you know, I grew up in India uh, in a city called Bombay which is a city within cities, which, which is if, if New York is a melting pot, Bombay is like an industrial furnace. You have every race, caste, religion, language, etc. So I grew up in this very interesting cosmopolitan city, but I also grew up in a small village in deep South India. Think about the difference between New York and Mississippi, you know. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in these both these worlds in that deep South Indian village. There was no electricity. There was no running water. But that's where my grandparents lived. They were poor farmers. They worked 16 hours a day in the field. And my grandmother was, interesting enough, a, a, a healer. She worked 16 hours, but on weekends, she practiced India's traditional system of medicine, where she could observe your face, predict what was going on in your body, and she could she healed people using mixtures of herbs, massage, etc. You know, it may seem a little woo-woo to us, but they have a whole system. So I grew up in these worlds where I saw that, but I also grew up in, in India where I saw the caste system. You know, there was a hierarchy of the priesthood and the elites on top, the you know the politicians the kings and then you had the business people and then we were called the untouchables or deplorables right. what you may say <laughs> so my parents you know were incredible people in that environment they had actually done quite well and uh, but they hit a ceiling for growth because of the level of discrimination so they were very fortunate to be able to come to America and that immigration process is interesting first my dad came here legally and then we had to wait about a year so my sister myself and my mom had to wait and then we came right so we didn't sort of try to get through here illegally or anything so Mm -hmm. we came and we initially settled in uh, Patterson New Jersey this was 1970 I literally left India on my seventh birthday and we landed here three days later it was a long trip in those days Um, in Patterson I went through the public school system you know played baseball had a lawn mowing business you know was a American kid had a paper route Um, but interestingly enough for me at the age of 14 I had this incredible opportunity with only America could have afforded because in those days, the public educational system, teachers had a little more power, unlike what the Department of Education does today. So because of that, I was able to accelerate, you know, and I uh, had the chance to go to NYU as a 14-year-old kid to study in a computer science program, finished that, and my school changed the entire rules because teachers were fighters in those days. And I got to work full-time at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School, where I was given this task to convert the old-fashioned inner office mail system. You know, the inbox, outbox, folders, desktop attachments. That's how people communicated in the old days, in the 70s. And I was helping secretaries, you know, where they were using typewriter. And I was asked to take that entire old-fashioned office mail system and bring it to the electronic version. 
I wrote 50,000 lines of software code, again, as a 14-year-old kid, called it email, a Mm -hmm. term never used before in the English language. And then a few years later, I was awarded by the United States government the first U.S. copyright for email, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. Forgot about it because I was a good, humble Indian kid, went off to MIT Mm -hmm. and went through the whole education process of getting four degrees, starting many companies, uh, seven companies, generating a lot of jobs plus wealth for my stuff. But all of that was possible, Brittany, because of America, which is a journey we've all gone through. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can talk more, but that's sort of the broad journey of me coming from India here. And I can talk more about the different kinds of things I've done. But that was the core of what America uh, allowed me and my parents and all of us. Yeah, so you having come here legally and gone, gone through all, the entire process, you know, which can be very um, strenuous and, and long, how do you feel personally about illegal immigration then and kind of by extension the wall that Donald Trump wants to build and border security? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, you know, you know, when I went through the uh, public school education system and then the university education system at MIT where I got four degrees, one of my degrees is in bio- biological engineering or called systems biology at MIT. Now, here's the interesting thing. You, when you look at the human body, you know, we have about 10 trillion cells, mm-hmm. right? So it's an interesting thing where, you know, nature has decentralized us into 10 trillion cells. Intelligence is distributed. But one of the things, if you take each one of those cells, they all have a border around them. It's called a membrane, right? Nature is extremely smart. It doesn't have open borders. Otherwise, viruses would get in, all sorts of things would get into our body. Every cell has a membrane. We have a membrane called the skin, you know. Uh, the earth has a membrane called the atmosphere. So nowhere in nature do you find open borders because with open borders, you would basically destroy yourself. Mm-hmm. So even if you consider nature is probably the most intelligent engineer, the most intelligent designer, nature has always created borders. And so I find it incredible that these so-called elites who claim they are so intelligent want to try to push forward a narrative that we should not have any borders for a country when countries deserve to have borders Otherwise, there is no country. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think uh, there's another agenda here. Those people who do not want borders either want to destroy America or they have another uh, agenda, which is they want to let as many people in so they can create voting blocks. And I tend to think yeah. the latter and some of the former is taking place. You know, they want to create a pool of people because according, I believe, the, I may get which amendment it is, but the 13th or 14th Amendment, I think the 14th. Um, we consider a person is considered someone who pays taxes, right? So if you have 11 million illegals, you can also use that to quote unquote gerrymander and you get representation as, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So this is what's really going on. And the Democratic, the liberal Democrats push this because they really don't care about illegal immigrants. Let's be real. They, don't, they never cared about uh, the people in Mexico. They always kept the issue of immigration very nebulous so they could basically exploit these people for cheap labor while depressing American labor. This was the economics all, of all of it. But the Democrats are very clever at putting the wrapper, great PR, that they care for immigrants, but they really don't. They just want to use them. They just want to use them. So, then, so, you know, when Donald, so the issue is if you go back to the 16, 17, 1800s, you know, the entire history of America, you find that the notion of particularly Mexican immigration was always kept nebulous, particularly by a lot of the liberal Democrats who wanted to use these people as cheap labor. So Donald Trump, at minimum, is trying to correct a a problem that should have been corrected hundreds of years ago by saying, let's have clear distinction between who should be and who should not be. Mm -hmm. And then you see the reaction by uh, the 
you know, the, the, I don't even want to put the liberal forces, these, these labels are wrong, but what I call forces which just care about themselves. They're anti-American. They don't care about this country. They care about themselves and control over large uh, masses of people in this country. Mm -hmm. And I also kind of find it interesting how, you know, they claim to care so much for diversity, but in letting everyone in and having no borders, that dilutes diversity and culture. So, I mean, it's just one other thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, when I went to MIT, there's you, you see, I found the liberal hypocrisy in many of these elite institutions. Um, it's fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. MIT talks about diversity and inclusivity but they have hundreds of different clubs breaking people up into their different races. Mm -hmm. The Black Students Club, the Caribbean Students Club, the African Students Club, right? So they promote, uh, you know, distinctions, but yet they say they want inclusivity, et cetera. So they have this big contradiction. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so the, the I, I want to, again, put the word liberals in quotes. These people actually don't want diversity. What they really want to do is control people. So they want to have inclusivity and diversity under their terms so they could really keep people on their plantation. You know, and I could talk personally about what I've experienced in that model within these large liberal institutions. But when you break from their mold, they, they, they detest that. Yeah. So the entire model is to keep people on a plantation within their narrative so they want diversity under their terms. Yeah. So, you know, a guy like me who's an Indian guy you know, supporting Make America Great, supporting Trump, right? Exactly. Uh, having four degrees from MIT sort of breaks their mold. They don't get it. It doesn't compute for them. Yeah. Because they think intelligence is a function of supporting someone like an Elizabeth Warren, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? That computes for them. They consider someone like a Donald Trump rogue, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't fit their mold, et cetera. But he's actually speaking the truth on many, many things. Yeah, and it seems like from the, you know, quote-unquote liberals, the people of different ethnicities who don't support their narrative get it the worst. Like, they just are dragged through the mud. I can't imagine. Right. Um, kind of related to that, you mentioned, you know, Donald Trump, that you, that you support him. Why initially did you decide to support Donald Trump? So, you know, I've been a student of history for a long time. You know, my earliest memory uh, in India was as a kid where I was playing soccer and I went to what I thought was my friend's home and his mother made me stand outside, would not let me into the house and gave me water in a different cup. And she called me Shudra. It's like the N word in India. That's when I didn't know what the caste system was. I went and asked my mom and she said, oh yeah, we're considered untouchables. She said when she was uh, in the village, she went to the well, they would all run away and say, shu, shu, Shudra, right? Mm -hmm. So that event made me start understanding why, what is this caste system? So when I came to America, you know, I was very interested in politics. I remember being a 17-year-old kid at MIT, 18 or something. This is when the uh, Jesse Jackson was running for president. You know, he was running. There was, I think, Reagan was running. There was Walter Mondale. And Jackson was building a coalition called the Rainbow Coalition, saying we're going to bring all the people together, mm -hmm. black, white, all different colors. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting, right? You know, you're sort of moved by that, sort of, sort of like a Bernie Sanders. But at the last minute on the floor of the Democratic Convention, he gives all of his votes to Walter Mondale, right? So he's mm -hmm. clearly bought out, saying, oh, Reagan is so horrible, we need to protect the Democrats. So that's when I broke with all political parties, all establishment parties, because I realized they were basically two heads of the same snake. Exactly. And that's a position I took. They're basically establishment parties who have their own racket going on, which is sustaining themselves. So I've been a student of that politics. So when Donald Trump came, by the way, you know, I was, I was uh, naturalized as a citizen in 83 or so. 
So I never voted because I never trusted these guys. Mm -hmm. And I would attack both parties. But when Trump came out and he was openly using his platform to expose a collusion between the fake news media and the establishment politicians, I loved it, right? Because here yeah. was a person who had made money, who didn't have to do that, and he was going at them hard uncompromisingly. So that's the first time I registered as an independent and voted for him. And then I was invited to the inauguration. And, uh, you know, I heard a speech and then I registered as a Republican, as a Lincoln Republican. I thought finally the party of Lincoln was coming back because mm -hmm. Lincoln believed labor, people working, was more important than capital. And Lincoln was actually trying to solve problems, right? He wasn't taking rhetorical sides. He actually had to keep this nation together in the midst of one of the bloodiest civil wars. And I saw Trump taking a very practical approach to everything. You know, it's not about left or right. Um, it's about really addressing problems so the American dream would not be eviscerated, mm -hmm. which is what people like Hillary Clinton wanted to do. Yeah. So, that's, so that, that, that was my journey, you know, as someone, as a student of politics. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of the same for me. Like, I've never identified as Republican. I simply, you know, voted Republican because Donald Trump was the candidate. So... Um, like I voted Ron Paul before. Uh, so apparently you have generated a lot of controversy, at least when I, when I Googled, it was like controversial claims um, that you invented email. And I know you mentioned that earlier in the interview, but can you expound a little bit upon your, your journey inventing email and how it was, you know, the credit was given to someone else? Yeah, so here's the interesting thing, right? So going back to the caste system, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at in the Indian caste model, think about it as a pyramid. On the top were the priesthood and the scribes. Mm -hmm. Then were the kings. Then were the warriors and then the business people. And below was all the deplorables or untouchables, okay? Now, you, if you compare that to the modern world, it's on the top is the academics and the media. Below is the politicians, right? And then you have, you know, et cetera, right? And the, we are the deplorables at the bottom. Yeah. So the interesting thing is the academics and the media, what's really fascinating about them, you know, the, the Wall Street bankers, for example, they care about making money or entrepreneurs. We care about making money and profit. But what do the priesthood, what I call the priesthood on top or the academics or the media care about? They don't really care about making money. They care about control, mm -hmm. right? which is fascinating, right? This is even more dangerous, right? Because they, they could make a low salary, but they want to control narratives. They want to be on top of the heap, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's sort of the background of this. So, um, you know, in, in 1981, when I came to MIT, you know, I was featured on the front page as three students were featured for doing some very notable things out of the th class of 1,041 coming in. And I was one of them for having invented this email system. And I looked at it and I said, interesting, I was brought up to be a good, humble Indian. Um, and where did that story come from? The invention of email. So if you fast forward back to 1978, you know, in those days in 1978, you know, women essentially could do four things, uh, right? Either they could be a secretary, mm -hmm. a nurse, a teacher, or a housewife. Those were essentially what women could be. So when I was 14, as I mentioned, because I was one of these overachievers, but I wasn't just a nerd. I also did a lot of sports. Um, uh, but uh, I got the opportunity to get accepted to a special program at New York University as a 14-year-old kid out of 40 kids in the entire country oh where I learned computer, computer science and program. And my dear mom would drop me off at 6 a.m. at Newark, and I'd take the train in, into about an hour and a half into New York. This is when I was 14. Now parents are afraid to send their kids anywhere. Yeah. And I studied computer programming, seven different languages, and I graduated top of the class. After that, I was very bored with high school, 
But there was another woman who completely changed the rules, fought with the superintendent of schools. So this 14-year-old kid in the middle of the day could go work full-time in Newark, which a lot of people are still afraid to go into, uh, full-time. And there I was asked as a challenge to keep me motivated to convert this thing called the inter-office mail system. In those days, a secretary, as I mentioned, had a desktop. She had an inbox, an outbox on her desk. She had a typewriter where she'd write a memo to, from, subject. CC was literally carbon paper. They'd put a, a blank piece of paper, carbon paper, and they'd write a thing called a memo. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'd have attachments. They had the address book. They would send this around, and they would put it in an inner office mail envelope and send it around through pneumatic tubes. This is how you hired someone. This is how you did grant applications. It was the email before email. And I was asked to convert that entire system, Brittany, into the electronic version, and I called wow. it email. And the reason I called it email was because a Fortran programming language allowed six characters and the operating system only five. It was a not-so-obvious term. Now, you got to understand, prior to that time, going back to the age of the telegraph, people were changing, exchanging text messages, including mm -hmm. between computers, like texting, small messages. But that's not email. I never claimed I created electronic text messaging, but I created the system, called it email, as we know, and wrote 50,000 lines of code, worked until 2 a.m. every day. Um, went off to MIT in 81. What's fascinating is um, I never knew anything about legal stuff. My parents weren't lawyers, but I was student body president of MIT, and I went. I was invited to the president's home. And Dr. Paul Gray, who's the president of MIT, he was. I think he was a science advisor to the president at the time. He said, "Shiva, it's unfortunate you can't patent software, because the legal policymakers in Washington, none of them who are really engineers, they thought software was sheet music, Brittany. And in 1980, mm -hmm. they changed the copyright rules." Mm -hmm to allow you to use copyright law to uh, protect software inventions. So that's what I did. So I had to write, there's no PDFs, there was no internet. You had to write away, you, you paid your 10 bucks, you got your form, you had to submit all your code, and that went into the Library of Congress. And a user's manual I wrote, a, about a, a 30, 40 page user's manual, went public. So in 82, all of my code was made public. You know. Even when we invented that email system in that university, we didn't sign confidentiality agreements, IBM, HP, everyone came through there. So I created the, the system as we know as email. Shortly after that, you'll start seeing programs like Eudora, Lotus Notes. And then in 93, when the web took off, people took the email, which was basically used in the office environment between 78 to 93, and then it went to the web environment. Mm -hmm. So there's no dispute. I have the U.S. copyright recognizing me as the inventor of email. I wrote the 50,000 lines of code. I called it email. Mm -hmm. There's no controversy here. The controversy begins during the 35 years. I didn't get PR, right? Yeah. I didn't promote this. I didn't sell my software. Uh, another company called Raytheon had bought a company called BB&N. And there was a guy there who looked like a nerd, you know, mm -hmm. a beard, glasses, right? Uh, academics like to create narratives, right? Yeah. You can't be a handsome-looking, good-looking Indian guy who plays sports and invent email. It has to be someone who looks like, looks and feels like a nerd. Well, he right. had used right. the at symbol, wrote around 15, 20 lines of code to exchange text messages between computers. Nowhere near email. If you actually go look at it, at best, it may be considered like the early blog post on a good day or a caveman version of Reddit. Raytheon bought this company in 2009, because remember, cybersecurity after 9-11 became a big business. So Raytheon, a big military contractor, rebranded themselves as experts in cybersecurity, used the at logo as their new logo, and made Ray Tomlinson as the inventor of email, when all he did was okay. use the at sign for exchanging text message, mm -hmm. messages. So in 2011, my mom's dying of pulmonary fibrosis. In a suitcase, she saved all of these beautiful artifacts 
She gives it to me two months before she dies. Uh, the editor of T Time magazine, the te technology editor, by the way, the only journalist today to actually look at all the artifacts, spent three weeks looking through it, and he wrote a, a, a wonderful uh, long article in Time called A Man Who Invented Email. After that, three months later, so it was November 2011, February 2012, the Smithsonian invited me, and they wanted all my materials because they thought this was a treasure trove of materials. Mm -hmm. It goes into the Smithsonian. It was a big honor on February 16, 2012. And a young Washington Post reporter writes a beautiful article called V.A. Shiva Ayodhya Honored as the Inventor of Email. Now, that should have been an occasion for celebration of the American dream. Right after that, you see this vitriol of these academic elites who had written the narrative that, you know, email came from this guy. When he didn't invent email, they, and it came out of the military-industrial academic complex, it surely could not have come from Newark, New Jersey, through the public school system, through where, you know, I was paid a buck twenty-five in my second year. Right. You had to spend millions of dollars. So you see all this vitriol. Gawker Media, who did no research, goes along with this narrative mm -hmm. and they call me all sorts of names. Fraud. You can, you know, and I couldn't find any lawyer in Massachusetts to go against them because they all have tentacles to Raytheon. Mm -hmm. Finally, the beginning of last year, if you remember, Hulk Hogan sued oh, Gawker yeah. Media oh. because they had put forward a video with him having sex with his best friend's wife. Mm -hmm. So Hogan sued. Um, they won a big settlement, $140 million. Then it was appealed. Um, I sued uh, for $35 million. 30 days later, Gawker claims bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And the irony of it is I get appointed as one of the co-chairs of the Unsecured Creditors Committee. And I was brought in to oversee the sale with, obviously, the other lawyers oh of the God. sale of the Univision. So it's great karma. Uh -huh. They had to give close to a million dollars. And all the three defamatory articles were pulled down because the First Amendment doesn't, you know, protect against defamation. It doesn't protect against libel. Mm -hmm. First Amendment was intended for you or me to write articles against our government. It wasn't for media companies to write whatever they wanted and to make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars off of it through clickbaiting. Yeah, just pure slander. Exactly. Yeah, now, exactly. And, you, and what's even more interesting, how did MIT react? And getting back to your question on inclusivity and diversity. When I came to MIT, I was featured on the front page, right? Mm -hmm. uh, many years later, remember I said I went in and out of MIT, started many companies. I started another email company to analyze email. We did it originally for the Clinton White House. The Senate used our technology to analyze email to do the first email marketing programs. It was called Echo Mail. I grew that to around $250 million in value. Nice. Very successful entrepreneur. Gave you know hundreds of jobs in Massachusetts. I was featured on MIT's worldwide, world-renowned magazine called Technology Review. Okay, when I won my Fulbright, I was featured as this great scientist. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, it changes the narrative at MIT. I became a pariah. You see, and this is what I mean, when they talk about inclusivity and diversity, I was being a good Indian when they were able to use me and say, this guy's a, you know, isn't he a model minority? But when this Indian wasn't willing to be a good Indian anymore, he wasn't willing to be a Gunga Din, and I challenged yeah. the fact that email didn't come out of your elite institutions. It came before. Okay. That changes the narrative. Interesting. Right? So what, I, what I'm saying is this is, and, and this is a very important thing because President Eisenhower, 1961, when he left office, you know, here was a general in the military. He warned Americans of what he called the military-industrial-academic complex, what we call the deep state. And this is no mm -hmm. conspiracy. He said this triangle would destroy this country. These were the collusion of elite academics, big military, and big corporations who collude 
to own innovation. And what is innovation, Brittany? Innovation is ultimately the creation of us, what we create. Mm -hmm. The founders of this country, ultimately, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, they wanted to eliminate nobility. They wanted to eliminate the priesthood. They wanted us, each one of us, to have a direct connection to our creator. And the aspect was innovation and creativity. So that is the essence of being divine in a human spirit. So, but these guys, just like they want to factory farm food, they want to factory farm innovation. So they want to factory mm -hmm. farm it at MIT or Silicon Valley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you see, there's a very deep narrative. Yeah. And that's why they went up on Wikipedia. They people can, they destroyed my pages. They just try to make me a non-person mm -hmm. because I was not willing to be a good Indian. Yeah. So they don't. They're they're basically the liberals are basically the biggest racists in the world because they want you to be a good Indian or a, a good African American under their terms. Mm -hmm. So where does it sit now? Is it, it have you been given the credit? Um, you know, in the eyes well, of the well, the reality is, I you know, it's not about being given the credit. I don't care to. They don't give anything, right? Mm -hmm. They try to take things. The reality is, the facts are black and white. You know, Noam Chomsky said this was one of the big left theorists. Noam went through it, and he said it's black and white. This guy invented email. Mm -hmm. So think about, I mean, think about how these people work, right? Galileo had clear data. The sun was the center of the solar system. Absolute, you know, irrefutable data. I don't know if you know, it was only 1992 did the Catholic Church say sorry that they made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, so that's w the beginning. Then you look at for 50 years, academics colluded with big business to say smoking was good for you. Yeah. Robert Proctor wrote a m famous book uh, called The Golden Holocaust. And more recently, you can look at this guy, this Columbia University professor, forget his name, who said that, you know, we should all invest in Iceland. It's a great economy. And he wrote a beautiful 12-point paper. You see, academics are the storytellers. It's pay-to-play science. Historians are storytellers. But anyone who looks at it, there was the inner office mail system. I was the first to call it email, first to write 50,000 lines of code, first to get the U.S. copyright. Mm -hmm. There's no controversy here. They create controversy. It's one of the ways that they work to disinform and try to malign people. The facts are obvious. Well, Gawker had to pay me 750 k they pulled down the three articles. Um, but this is a deep narrative because it's a caste system, right? Because yeah. if, if innovation only comes out of MIT and Silicon Valley, the academic elites control that, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. it's so, for people to make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. The facts are black and white. I am the inventor of email is recognized by the United States government is that there is no controversy or they created a controversy. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. Whether it's true or not, whoever has power, they write history. So. Exactly. And that's why you have to fight them. You know, Philo mm -hmm. Farnsworth, a young farm boy in a 600 person small town in Franklin, Idaho, where nothing is supposed to come out of again, is a, is a boy who invented TV. He saw the way the cows were doing this pattern. He built the tubes. He, again, very much like me, had a loving family, a good mentor, a good public education system. He built the first TV set. RCA came, stole it from him. They destroyed him in the courts on the 19th year. Patent life is 20 years. He won. And then he died an alcoholic. Sixty years later, now there's a statue of Philo as the father of TV in the halls mm -hmm. of Congress, right? But that's what they do. They try to wear people out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the reality, the problem they have is I'm still alive. And the invention of email is not about me. It's about how they try to create elitist caste systems. Mm -hmm. Well, not only are you still alive, now you're challenging one, you know, one of them, Elizabeth Warren. So you are running for U.S. Senate in 2018. What made you want to run initially and what um, are the most important goals that you will try to accomplish if you win? 
Well, first of all, you know, you know, the way I look at Donald Trump, right, I have to give him credit for me wanting to run and deciding to run. Donald Trump basically threw a huge bomb, you know, a necessary bomb um, at, at this establishment, mm -hmm. right, of either party. It was almost like if you think about when the first shot was fired, you know, down the street here in Lexington, Mass., the first shot for the American Revolution. In my opinion, Donald Trump shot the first shot for, a, for the new American Revolution, mm -hmm. you know. That's what he did. And whether people like it or not, he did something that was necessary in this country. And the, and the reason I say that is because people like Elizabeth Warren, the elite academics, the establishment have been destroying the American dream. As I said, the founders of this country, you know, when you really study them, Jefferson, Thomas Paine, they believed that each one of us should use our own mind, body and soul to connect with our creator through innovation. Mm -hmm. Like we were supposed to all create things, not be dependent on government. That, that's why my parents left India. That's why I was successful, why you're successful, why all of us are successful, that we as Americans face our problems, we come up with solutions, and we generate wealth from that. That's called the cycle of innovation. Mm -hmm. What Elizabeth Warren wants to do is she's never created anything in her life, right? These are lawyer lobbyists, career politicians who just try to move up the ladder of career. They're mm -hmm. not that smart, but they're very, very manipulative. The fact that she took her application for Harvard checked off that she was a Native American, which means she's a fake Indian, and then her entire life has been through manipulation. And that's how these academic works. You know, when I was uh, in my second year at MIT, I realized most of these professors at MIT and many of these institutions are not that smart. They just play the game. Mm -hmm. And there, uh, Henry Kissinger said, if you want to get into politics, go into academia, because that's where the real politicians are. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Warren and the entire clan that she's part of are vicious. They, they manipulate truth. They care about only about themselves. And people like Elizabeth Warren, when I look at political dynamics, they're what I call the not-so-obvious establishment. If you look at political history, there's the establishment. There are the everyday people like ourselves who want to fight the establishment and change things. We may not be perfect. We may not say things the right way, nor do we care to say things the right way. And there's a, then there's a not-so-obvious establishment, people like Bernie Sanders, people like Elizabeth Warren, people mm -hmm. like Jesse Jackson, people like a lot of the sellout black leadership who talk a good game about change, hope, like Obama. But their goal is to take people off the streets and bring them back to the establishment. And that's what Elizabeth Warren is. She's the not-so-obvious establishment. In India, when I was growing up, these politicians would come saying, we wanted to help the untouchables. They'd give you free bags of rice. They'd give you you know, a radio, hoping that you'd vote for them. So they want to keep you in their cages. So Elizabeth Warren needs to be fought and, sh and she needs to be defeated right here because a new American revolution has started. And I believe people like Elizabeth Warren get elected. It's going to be the destruction of this country because it's going to be a wave of dependency. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm running. To me, this is deeply personal because she represents the neo-caste system in this country, the people who think they know better. But the reality is I know that you know better and we know better. Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren must be stopped, and I believe I'm the only one who can defeat her. I can go head to head. I can expose her. I know all her, you know, character uh, hypocrisies or character contradictions. But more importantly, you know, Massachusetts was where the American Revolution started. It is in many ways the center of incredible innovation, and she's never created anything. She doesn't deserve it, and I and I want to be the next 21st century senator. So with that oh. said, I think it's safe to assume then that you don't have a very high opinion of, of Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> no, think... you know, I, I think I think she's a complete charlatan. Mm -hmm. You know what she represents. She's duping a lot of, 
good, quote-unquote, liberal-minded people. They're giving her millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, many of these people uh, want to get rid of some of their liberal guilt. So they want to go help the poor darkie, you know, thinking yeah. that they're going to give her money, and then she's going to help the, the, them. If you read her new book, it is called This is Our Fight, the, ba the subtitle being The Battle to Save the American uh, Middle Class. So I responded with a book, which is called This Fight is Your Fight. <laughs> awesome. The battle to save America from the elites who think they know better. You see, they try to say, you know, it's our fight, as though you're going to outsource the fight to them. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we need to fight for America, and that's really the slogan of our campaign. Make America great again. If you think about it, that was episode one. Now we need to go to episode two, which is fight for America. And you can see what's happening on the national stage. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump is facing what I believe a civil war. A revolution took place. And if you look at any great revolution, there's always the counter-revolution. Mm -hmm. And these people, the fake news media, the academics, the collusion is they're getting so vicious. And so we need to all fight for America because, you know, his presidency is being threatened. And forget Donald Trump as an individual for a second, but what he represents was this wave of people, the deplorables, everyday people who broke away from people like Elizabeth Warren, people like Hillary Clinton, in fact, people, from, people like Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And that's what they really hate. It's not they hate Trump. They hate the fact that everyday people made, use their own mind, body, and soul, which is what the founders wanted us to do. Yeah. And we're doing it in a way that we haven't done in a long time. Did that election woke up millions. Exactly. And, and exactly. I believe it's a new American revolution. That's why we need to fight for America. And I believe only the real Indian can take out the fake Indian. <laughs> you know, and has many, many, you know, she's a fake fighter. You know, when she was at Harvard, she never fought for the food service workers there. She never really fought for anyone in their ivory tower. It's sitting in their ivory tower where they're completely taken care of. Mm -hmm. Right. She's never had to, you know, create a job. She's never had to pay payroll. I don't think she's ever invented anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these people do not deserve the prestige they get. And they're basically uh, duping people. They're complete charlatans and they have the entire fake news mainstream media behind them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know how to defeat them. And, I, you know, I fought. Gawker, we took them down. I fought Monsanto using this new technology I built where we can model the human cell on the computer. We exposed Monsanto. I, I went head on head against them. You know, I went head on head against the Indian government when I was appointed by the Prime Minister of India during my Fulbright to run one of the large institutions. And I put my life on the line. Uh, this is in 2009, Brittany, and I had to leave India under death threats. So I fought these guys all my life, and I know their weakness. 90% of them, the academic elites, are spineless. You know, they have no spine. They just use the weight of their credentials. That's all yeah. they have. Well, they're so well protected that there's never opportunities where they actually have to grow a spine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We should yeah. probably, I was thinking of, at one point, it would be nice on Christmas to get like spines and, <laughs> you know, have a list of the, the top hundred spines I want to give out to these spineless people. I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I also think it's important to note though, like you can relate to the average American having, you know, worked from the ground up yourself. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so you, yeah. So the thing is, you see, I remember I came here in India in 1970 and we settled in Patterson, you know, which is one of the poor cities. And my parents went through the entire public school system. My mother did not like going to any of these, you know, private schools. She felt that we should be part of everyday people. My mom worked in a factory. My dad worked in a factory. My mom was a mathematician and a, my dad was an engineer, but they had to start, you know, at the bottom. And all of my friends, when I worked at that university, were the secretaries, you know, were janitors. So these were my people. You know, when I went back to India in 75, my grandmother, you know, was a poor farmer. My aunt lived in a hut. And that's when I realized 
the difference. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I have always related to everyday people. I was just one of those anomalies, you know, and they're basically probably all rolling in their graves, many of the people who let me into MIT, why they even gave me four degrees. But I got those four degrees on behalf of everyday people so I could use, use it, you know, against them one day. So these are weapons. But I do not consider myself as a part of these elites. I've just been sort of an anomaly. But I think it's time that people like myself and others who know how these people operate to go head on head and fight them. So I believe I was put on this world to fight them, frankly, Brittany, because I made a promise when I left India and I saw the poverty there that I would fight oppression. And that oppression of, of these people on the top thinking they know better not only exists in India, but now it's permeated all of America and it needs to be stopped. It's not the American dream. Yeah, their time is over. <clears throat> yep. Exactly. Yeah. So how is the, what's the best way for people to support you during your run? So the best way is, you know, obviously we've created a website called Shiva for Senate, S-H-I-V-A, the number four, Senate.com. What we want to do is we want to create a wave because if you think about it, the belly of the beast is in Massachusetts right here. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to create a wave where across the country and we want people to show that they want to fight for America and give us $5. It's not the money. We want people to go to the website. If they want to give more or less, it doesn't matter, but at least five and show that there's a wave of people who want to stop Elizabeth Warren here and now. Mm -hmm. That's what we need people to do. And obviously, people want to volunteer, help us on social media. It's great. But we've also built a bus. Um, we'll, ha we'll send you a picture of it. We had a bunch of students who gutted a whole school bus. We have a little bed in there. We have a conference room. We have a kitchen. But we're literally going direct. So in many ways, we're going old school, mm -hmm. direct to each of the towns. Awesome. Because we have to get on the ballot, and there's a whole rigging the establishment Republicans do here. Because, you know, I'm an outsider. But I go face-to-face. -face. Brittany and everyone loves our message and what we're saying. And then we're going air through social media. So we're doing both. So, you know, whatever, you know, everyone listening to this can do to go up there. You know, we want 50,000, 100,000 people to donate five bucks because it shows there's a wave. And I think this is going to be a historic campaign because she's not just running for senator. She's actually, if you see, it, or, uh, see her website, it says, stop Donald Trump. So this woman is actually completely, you know, a psychopath. She has illusions of grandeur. She thinks she's leading a way for this, some bogus fight. She's only leading it for herself. She cares not about everyday people at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. I will link that website below so it's very yeah. easy for people to find. Um, thank you so much for joining me uh, today, though, Shiva. Um, and thank you, everyone, right. for, for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you'd like to support my channel, I accept donations via my website. And you can find my award-winning book, Hatred Day, on Amazon, Audible, and Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much for watching. And thank you so much once again, Shiva. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Brittany. Great show. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely.